You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. While they're shuffling out, um, you can go ahead and grab your Bible, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, go ahead and grab one. There should be one in the pew in front of you there. And uh, if you don't have a Bible um, that is your own, that uh, that you can read easily, please take this one. It's our gift to you. I'm glad to have those uh, walking out of here. Um, Nobody's going to stop you and say, hey, don't take that. They're going to say, awesome, take it. Um, Odd week this week. Um, Last week, we finished uh, the last sermon through the book of Colossians. We've been there for uh, about a year. And uh, next week, we're going to start into a new series called The Church. And we're just going to look at a number of different elements of the church, um, things that we do, the things that we value, asking why do we do them? What do they they mean? Why do they matter? And so we're going to start off talking about baptism next Sunday as a couple of people are being baptized. Uh, We'll look at communion, uh, giving, worship, preaching, some of those things, and just kind of relaying that foundation. Why do we do the things that we do? Why are we here? Um, So that's what you have to look forward to. Uh, But before we go there, um, as I mentioned last week, um, we want to take a a moment this week as elders. We we met and we're talking through the current political situation, everything that's going on, and uh, thought it would be prudent to take this Sunday to address um, the, the issue of homosexuality. Uh, what do we do with this in our world, in our culture? Um, you're probably aware um, Bill C-4 passed last, or became law last week. Um, this is a bill which is the, the stated purpose is to outlaw what is called conversion therapy. And, and there's a bit of a dance here. Because what used to be defined as conversion therapy uh, is something we would just absolutely be opposed to. Um, It used to refer to forceful, coercive, manipulative so-called therapies um, used to badger people or force people into changing their lifestyle, particularly a homosexual lifestyle. And so the banning of that, we would say, amen, all for it. There's no place in Christianity for coercion, for manipulation. Um, Forced exterior change um, is meaningless. Um, those, those things are incompatible with the gospel that we preach. You can't bully someone into becoming a Christian. There's no, there's no value in that kind of surface forced transformation. However, that is clearly not where this bill ended up. And the, the new definition of conversion therapy outlined in the bill is, is this, uh, a practice, treatment, or service designed to change someone's sexual orientation to heterosexual, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, repress a person's non-cisgender identity, or repress or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to a person at birth. And so 
any practice, any service um, that, that moves someone toward what we would say is a biblical definition of gender and sexuality. And so even if someone were to come to me uh, as a pastor and say, help me, um, help me put off this sin, help me change the way that I'm living under this bill, it would it be illegal for me to do so. Uh, and so last week, um, we joined with a number of churches across Canada to read uh, a, a, a joint statement on Bill C-4 and, and to respond to it. Um, I want to read that statement again uh, this morning so that you, uh, if you weren't here, you know what was said. And, uh, um, and if you were, we'll be reminded of it together. So um, let me just read this statement that was read in churches across Canada last Sunday. Uh, this past week marked a monumental change in Canadian law and society with the entrance of Federal Bill C-4, which amends the Criminal Code of Canada. The law's stated purpose is to outlaw conversion therapy. We strongly oppose the coercive and unscientific therapeutic practices the bill was introduced to address. We appreciate and affirm the desire of Parliament to protect the vulnerable. However, we are deeply concerned that the effective reach of the legislation could be extended far beyond its stated purpose. Because the definition of conversion therapy is vague, uh, many are concerned that it could capture parents, pastors, and counselors who teach a biblical understanding of sexuality in a variety of situations. The Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms guarantees our freedoms of religion, conscious thought, belief, expression, and association. It is our prayer that the law will be applied and clarified as needed in such a way as to honor these charter protections. We recognize that the greatest danger facing the Canadian church is not that we might face criminal persecution, but rather that we might compromise in our teaching of the word of God or fall silent in our proclamation of the gospel. Along with church leaders of like conviction across Canada, we stand before you today to pledge that we are committed to obeying God above all others, Acts 5.29. With the Lord's help, we will continue to proclaim the whole counsel of God, Acts 20.27. Without fear or favor. This includes God's life giving design for human beings made in His image, male and female, Genesis 1 27, with sexual intimacy reserved for the covenantal union of a man and woman, Genesis 2 24. We will continue to issue a call to repent of all kinds of sin and to believe the gospel, knowing that we have all sinned, Romans 3 23, and that salvation through Jesus is the one true hope for the world, Acts 4.12. Uh, we will continue to love and serve all people in our community without distinction in Jesus' name. As we press on in the work of the ministry, we will trust our Heavenly Father uh, to guard us and keep us and to work out His greater purpose for our good and His glory. And we continue to pray for our government and plead with the Lord to have mercy uh, on our needy land. So that's our statement. Um, but that's not today's job. Um, this position, um, the role of the preaching, the pulpit is not a tool for, uh, politics. And so my goal, my aim this morning, uh, is not to preach politics, but to preach the gospel. And so, um, as we try to set our bearings on this, I want us to talk less about conversion therapy and more about conversion. And so uh, to do that, I want us to look together at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. So uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
starting in verse 9, Paul writes this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Do you pray with me? Father, um, we come to you, to your word, uh, in humble submission this morning. Lord, we uh, dare not step out on our own. We want to stand on your word, on your truth. Lord, I pray for my words this morning, um, that I would not speak um, what you have not already spoken, that your word would be proclaimed, that it would be your truth um, upon which we stand. God, I pray for our hearts as we venture into some culturally difficult, um, inflammatory um, topics. God, may we have soft hearts. May we be be, uh, quick to bend our will to yours to see uh, your truth um, for the good and the glory that it is. Would you be at work this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Well, in these verses, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 9 to 11, we see first, the gospel is clear about sin. This is countercultural right off the bat, right at its very foundation. Paul assumes that there is this category of the unrighteous. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, what is that? That's, that right there is not okay already. This is an important concept. The idea of righteous assumes that, that there is a law, that there is a standard outside of us, a standard that is above us, and that there are some who indeed are unrighteous, who don't meet that standard. In fact, I think if we read this list, we would say there are many, many, many who do not meet that standard. Right and wrong uh, is not a matter of what each person Beliefs, following our own hearts, being true to ourselves or owning our truth. That's not how we define good and evil, right and wrong. The gospel begins with this assumption that there is an objective standard above us. And the Bible does, in fact, talk about um, people doing what is right in their own eyes. Um, The book of Judges has this concept. The book of Judges outlines some of the darkest days in all of Israel's history, filled with horrific acts of sin, riddled with suffering and pain. And the last section, Judges 21-25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Each person thought about what they truly believed, what was good and right and and proper, according to their own heart, according to their own standards, and they, they did that. And it was moral chaos. It was pain. It was wickedness. You wonder why we are where we are today. It's not because people make mistakes or people aren't the best version of themselves. It's because people do what is right in their own eyes. There is a law 
There is a standard of, of righteousness, and that, that standard is not defined by how we happen to feel. Or that you believe it's true. And let's be precise here, because I think even a lot of well-meaning Christians get this a little bit off, and, and this, this matters. Um, it's not that there is some higher law that God just kind of arbitrarily put in place. These are the things I declare to be good, and so be it. And it's not as if there's this kind of cosmic law outside of God that God just happens to also be subjected to. You know, if we look at Leviticus 19.2, God tells Moses, Speak to all the congregation, the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, the Lord, there is his proper name, Yahweh, I am that I am, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Why should we be holy? Why should we live moral lives? Because God is holy. Because the I am is that. What is the definition of holiness? Where do these rules, these boundaries, where does this morality come from? None other than God himself. He is the standard. When when God gave the the Ten Commandments to Israel, he, he wasn't just picking things out of a hat and saying, here's here's ten things I just want you to, to do and not do. They're not arbitrary. He was actually saying, this is who I am. This is my nature. This is my identity as the creator God. This is who I am. And this is the world that I've created and the context within which I've created to operate. So Paul starts with that assumption that there are those who don't do that. Those who do not live in accordance with with God's standard and and who he is and his holiness. And he calls them unrighteous. They do not live a life that is in line with the objective, immovable principles of of the nature of God. Principles that he's woven into the fabric of this creation. And so then he adds this warning. Look back at at verse 9. He says, "The, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, then, he says. Do not be deceived. Why would he say that? Well, because we're prone to being deceived. Because we are in danger as those who are not God, but let's be honest, frankly, like to fancy ourselves as God. We like to make our own rules. We like to step into that position. We are in danger of being deceived, of calling evil good or good evil making our own version of morality, morality not rooted in who God is, but in who we are. So Proverbs 14, 12 warns, there is a way that seems right to a man. It looks good, it makes sense, but its end is the way to death. Don't be deceived. This is tough. We we live in a world that is pulling very hard on this. You're going to leave this place and, and if you just flip onto YouTube or Facebook and scroll through, you're going to get numerous messages that contradict what I say here this morning. Don't miss this. We are prone to be deceived. And then he lists 10 things, helping them sort this out. So the unrighteous won't inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Here are 10 things that that, that unrighteousness looks like. This isn't a... Uh, an exhaustive list, but these things certainly fit in this category of sin, of unrighteous. He lists sexual immorality. 
idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, thieving, greed, drunkenness, reviling, and swindling. Let's break this up. Let's look at the first five. Um, That'll take us to the end of verse nine, and and we'll leave the last five for later. Um, Now, I'm not sure how good you are at counting or how fast you've added that up. Um, The first five are actually four, and I'll explain that in a minute. Um, But what I want us to see immediately is, is this simple fact God cares about our sex lives. He cares. We, in in setting our own selves up as our own authorities, doing what is right in our own eyes, we've declared that there is no law here. That's holy ground. The, the, The whole idea of gender and sex and love, everyone has the right to do anything they should please and no one could ever put a standard there. No standard so high, so pervasive that it could apply to to sexual activity. That, our culture argues, is holy ground. No one can pass judgment on that. God disagrees. God disagrees. At the same time, we notice God is not just specifically grabbing homosexuality here. He, He doesn't single it out. That's not some unique thing that he goes after. Um, I remember Tim Keller on a, a talk show a number of years ago, um, shortly after Joel Osteen's infamous dodging of the question, and so Keller was put on the spot, um, does God condemn homosexuality? And uh, Keller um, looked at the interviewer and he said, oh no, it's far worse than that. <laughs> like, you haven't, even, you haven't even started to get controversial yet. No, it's, it's everything. God, as your creator, demands absolute submission and obedience from every single part of your life. It's not just about sexuality. It's about all of us. That being said, as we look at these verses, it is clear that the category of everything does include our sex lives and does include homosexuality. Paul hits this uh, few categories here off the beginning. The the first word that he uses um, is translated the ESV, sexual immorality. The word is porneai in the Greek. Um, The origin of porneai meant to sell and uh, first began to refer to prostitutes. And as words develop over the years, uh, it became a a generic term for uh, any illicit sexual behavior. It's a very broad category. Sexual immorality is a, a good English translation. It's kind of nice and generic, and and, uh, some translations have fornication there, which is not a word we use a whole lot anymore. That that refers to um, sex between any two unmarried people. Um, Not a bad translation either. The next thing Paul hits is idolatry, the worship of idols and false gods. And uh, that might seem a little bit out of place to us here, why why that here in this list. Um, But in the Greek world, Idol worship was often associated with cult prostitutes, sexual immorality. That's how you would go and worship these false gods. And it was common and it was acceptable in society. And so you can imagine the the people of that day. Well, I'm just just worshiping these idols. Yeah, I wonder why. Um, Seems to have a certain pull to it. Um, So that's all wrapped up in this. Certainly, um, he's saying the worship of false gods, the worship of idols, that's unrighteousness. But 
Also, I think he has in mind here the, the promiscuous and licentious practices that surrounded that whole culture. So, sexual immorality, idolatry, and then adultery. That's the most specific term so far. It speaks of unfaithfulness from a married person, the, the breaking of the marriage covenant by infidelity. And that, that brings us then to what is actually the last two sins uh, in the, the last half of this list. The reason I said uh, five when you can only see four is that Paul actually uses two words here. Um, and the most English translations only have one. Um, it's not that they're hiding something. They're just kind of simplifying it. Um, you understand any translation simplifies to some degree. Um, the NASB, um, which is kind of known to be harder to read in English, but a little more intentionally following uh, the Greek, um, it has both effeminate and homosexual. And so Paul's, frankly, he's being rather graphic here. He's, he's being pretty specific in what he's talking about. Um, the word effeminate translates the Greek word malakoi, um, which literally just means soft. Um, effeminate, I think, a pretty good translation there, um, but it certainly uh, had specific connotations in his day. Um, he's referring to men who do not act like men. They are not masculine. They're soft. Now, this doesn't mean just kind of gentle or sensitive. Um, the implication is they were offering themselves for homosexual practices. Um, 1984 version of the NIV um, translates this word male prostitutes. Um, I think it's a little bit too specific, but, but it's heading down that same road. It's close. Um, I don't want to make more out of this than is here, but I think there are certainly implications here for the whole transgender movement as well. Men who present themselves as women, um, certainly for the purpose of sex. This is, this is sin. This is not how God created us to operate. The second word that Paul uses uh, is much more clear. Um, it is arsenicoitus. And uh, arson means male. I'll let you figure out what coitus means if you haven't already. Um, very specific. It's men having sex with men. The first um, word was, was speaking of the passive partner. This is speaking of the active partner. Like I said, Paul is a little pedantic here. And, and, and this is why many translations just kind of put those together as homosexuals because that's kind of two sides of the same coin. It's very clear. He unequivocally says homosexuality is a sin. The gospel is clear about sin. And I know you'll find all kinds of intelligent and, and complicated arguments to show that, that this verse doesn't really mean that or this verse doesn't really apply to us anymore. Um, I know I've heard them. I've read them. I've talked to people about them. Um, but what you will not find is a simple, plain reading of the text coming to any other conclusion. If we just let the Bible say what the Bible says, it's clear. And actually, I think it's very telling that there's about 12 different ways that this has to mean something else. They're not even consistent. They're not all looking at the same thing. Um, they all have a different way to, to reinterpret it, to reimagine it, um, rather than just letting the Bible speak, hard as it is. But here's the question that lingers. Why does God care? Why does this matter? 
Why is God bothered by what two consenting adults do in the privacy of their own home? Um, If it's between them, it doesn't hurt anyone. If they they really love one another, isn't God all about love? Isn't that a, a good thing? Why does it matter? Well, again, everything matters. It matters because God is perfect and holy and he created a world and everything in it, and designed it uh, as a display of his glory. He designed it to to function under his good and perfect rule, and and so it matters on one hand simply for for human flourishing, for our own good of of ourselves and and our society. This is what we were created for. I I love a good fountain pen. And when I graduated, my grandparents got me a Sailor 1911 fountain pen with a 14-karat gold tip. Beautiful, fabulous pen. So, so smooth and, and consistent um, kind of pen that cared for you. It, you would hand down to the next generation. Um, but if I were to take that pen out into my garage and start using its 14-karat gold nib to, to, to pry things as I'm working on my car, it's not going to go well for the pen. It's, uh, you might say, not using it according to the manufacturer's instructions. God created man and woman intentionally. He created marriage as this sacred covenant uh, between one man and one woman. He created sex to be experienced and enjoyed within the context of that covenant and that covenant alone. Anything else is to, to operate outside of our manufacturer's instructions. It will go badly, and, and not just physically, but, but, but spiritually and, and emotionally and, and in society. And not just for the people involved, but again, for, for society. As we continue to walk further and further away from what God has created us to be, how he's created us to, to function, to be, to be structured, this, this world groans under it. It causes all kinds of strain and problems. Now, don't get me wrong. Remember, the Lord delights, the Lord rejoices in his creatures enjoying his good gifts in the way that they were meant to be enjoyed, in the way that brings joy and happiness and peace and fulfillment. But he's pained and and angered when those good gifts are twisted and manipulated and misused in a way that causes Damage and degradation and disintegration um, in the world that he created. And the fact that we think that, that we could be the ones to just redefine those boundaries based on my perspective, my standard, I can just, we can forge our own path, we can go our own way, do what we feel is right. Well, it doesn't change reality. It merely displays the depth of our own pride and our, our rebellion against God. This matters. It matters for human flourishing. It also matters for our eternal destiny. Twice, Paul repeats this phrase, um, will not inherit the kingdom of God. First, he says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he gives this this specific list um, and and saying, um, those who live this way will not inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is that final eternal place where the rule and the reign of God as king will be fully, finally, completely implemented, everything put back into order, everything kind of brought back to better than it was at the Garden of Eden, 
put back into its rightful place, perfect alignment the way God created it to be. And that means no more death, no more sickness, no more pain or suffering, but rather perfect peace, joy, fulfillment, rest for eternity. But of course, those people who live in conflict with God and with his rule and reign, who continue to fight against his design and rebel against it, no, they don't fit there. There's no room for them in the kingdom of God. They don't belong. They will not be with him in his perfect eternity. Quite the opposite. It's the other side of the kingdom of God. Part of putting everything back together, putting everything right is perfectly punishing everything wrong. Romans 2.5 says, Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It's terrifying. Storing up wrath by our hard hearts, pushing against him. Revelation 19.15 says this about Jesus coming back, bringing in his kingdom, initiating eternity. And it says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, which will strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. That's not sheep hugging Jesus that we see pictures of. Um, That's terrifying. And it's a God who cares about right and wrong, good and evil, and he must. He is perfectly good. And if you love everything that is good, you have to hate that which is evil. If I love children, and the more I love children, the more I must hate child abusers. They they go hand in hand. The gospel is clear about sin. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Secondly, we see the gospel is clear about sinners. The gospel is clear about sinners. Verse 11 has this shocking statement, and such were some of you. We've been walking on dangerous ground. I hope you felt that. Anytime we we stand over here and we start to talk about those sinners over there, we're on thin ice. Need I remind us that homosexuality was not the only sin on the list. We'd like to focus on that and those people as if I have no part in this. But let's be clear. Homosexual activity is a sin, but so are plenty of heterosexual activities. And let's not forget the rest of the list. Look back at verse 9. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral of any kind, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. Keep going. Nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That list starts to get a little close for comfort. And we don't need to stop there. It's not an exhaustive list. We could add to that. Nor those who lie to their wives or cheat on their taxes or yell at their children, nor gluttons or hypocrites or jealous, lovers of money, lazy. If that hasn't stung yet, maybe we could add the proud and the self-righteous. This is us. This is all of us. Yes, 
homosexuality, bisexuality, trans, uh, transgenders, and that's sin. But let's be clear, people don't go to hell because they're gay. No one will be in hell because they're transgender. Now, Some of you just got real uncomfortable. Pay attention. Our biggest problem is not that we sin, but that we are sinful. No one will go to hell because they're gay and, and no one will go to heaven because they're straight. We deserve hell because at the, at the core of who we are, we're corrupted. There's this rebellion against God's sinfulness like this hereditary disease in all of us. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not talking about his mother's actions, but who he was from conception. Psalm 58.3, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. We're broken from day one. Um, if you have children, you figure out pretty quick. This thing is the most self-centered little creature I've ever met. Like he would tear your arms off to get that bottle if he could. We're born with it. Romans 5.12 puts it this way. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So in Adam, when Adam sinned, that first sin in the Garden of Eden, the human race was plunged together into sinfulness. And from there on out, we're, we're born with sinful, rebellious hearts. We're born as part of this, call it the human nation that is at war with God. And we're born that way, and we just so willingly live right into that, don't we? And so as people say, well, I was... I was born this way. This is the way I've been since the beginning. I was, I was born as a woman in a man's body. I was born with such and such a desire. That's part of who I am. It shouldn't surprise us. Me too. I was born with all kinds of sinful rebellion against God desires in me. Corrupted at the deepest level of who I am. Jesus said, Mark 7, 21. From within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. These, these gross sins that we've been talking about that we like to kind of keep at arm's length are just a different symptoms of the same disease that we have. And maybe our symptoms aren't quite as bad or more likely just not quite as obvious. But we're all born with this same disease and left untreated. It is fatal every time. As we talk about homosexuality, more importantly, as we talk to homosexual people, let's be careful what we communicate and how. Yes, yes, it is a sin. They are sinners just like every other human ever born, just like me? Yes, some sins have greater temporal consequences. If I murder someone, that's going to have a bigger effect on my life um, than if I covet. But it's the same problem at the root. 
Homosexuality is not some super sin, some far gone, off the map, unreachable sin, the, the, the return from which there is no hope. And we know this. Because as Paul writes to the the church in Corinth, he uses the past tense here, gloriously so. Such were some of you. That used to be who you were. The gospel is clear about sin, and the gospel is clear about sinners, and the gospel is clear about salvation. Look at the rest of verse 11. And such were some of you, but, glorious, glorious, but, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Thank the Lord for verse 11. This is us. We were unrighteous. No place in the kingdom of God. And there's hope. There's hope for the worst of sinners. Listen, conversion therapy is not the answer. Conversion therapy doesn't work. We we need conversion at a much, much deeper level. We need conversion that is a radical transformation of the heart. And that's exactly what the gospel offers. Paul gives three descriptive words here, uh, essentially focusing on the same thing, but each kind of with their own nuance. First, he says to them, you were washed. Sin leaves us dirty, filthy, covered in in shame. Like the the kid that's been rolling out in the mud, the the street urchin that wants to come prancing into the, the governor's mansion with the white carpets. No, you don't belong here. Second, it says you were sanctified. This is moral language. To be sanctified means to be made holy. Because sin makes us unholy. It makes us morally corrupt, unworthy of God's favor, his kindness. And thirdly, he says you were justified. This is legal language. Now you were guilty. Legally liable to judgment, condemned under God's perfect law. And let's not just talk about homosexuals. This is every one of us, born into it and willingly lived it out. Filth and shame, morally corrupt, guilty before God. And there's only one hope. There's only one way that we can be washed, that we can be sanctified, that we can be justified. This is a desperate situation. It's the bottom of verse 11. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Notice the preposition here. In the name of Jesus, by the Spirit of our God. Um, In the name of Jesus means it's on his authority. It's it's charged to, to his account. That's our only hope. There's nothing we can do to fix this. I I have no sponge to clean off the filth of sin. I have no way to to move anyone from unholy to holy or from guilty to not guilty. What hope do we have? This is the hope we have. In the name of Jesus or by his authority. And so it's pointing back to the work of the cross. Washing. Isaiah 1.18 
It says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. We are filthy in sin. And his blood can wash white as snow, can cleanse that. His death on the cross on our behalf washes us. Titus 3.5 gives us a little more insight. It says, he, God, saved us, not because works done in righteousness. Thanks goodness for that, because I don't have any. He saved us, not because we were good people or doing good things, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. It's just his kindness. It's just his mercy poured out undeservingly by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That that washing of salvation is not just an exterior wash because it's not just an exterior stain. It's the washing that is done by by regeneration. There's a, a recreation that needs to happen. A new heart in the place of the old one. A heart that is clean and pure, replacing the the sinful, corrupted heart. We're not only washed, we're sanctified. Hebrews 13, 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. This idea of outside the gate was hugely significant um, in in the Jewish mindset. Outside the camp, outside the gate, that's, that's where you would put the unclean people, the people with leprosy that you don't want to infect everyone else. You would put them outside the camp. That's where they would take their garbage out to a, a pile in a place called Gehenna, which we translate hell, and they burned it. And that burning, smoldering smoke would go up. That's where they would take their pails of refuse and dump it out. This place of Desecration. It's a dirty place outside the camp. Jesus picked up his cross and carried it outside the camp to a hill called Calvary. And there on our behalf, he was treated as unholy. He was treated as a despicable, despised, filthy thing so that we could be made holy, so that we could be brought inside the camp. We who deserve to be out there with the the lepers and the garbage and the dung can be brought in. And not just into the camp, but into the family, into the palace. It says we're adopted as sons of God. We're made part of the, the royal family. In the name of Jesus, we're washed. In the name of Jesus, we can be sanctified. And then finally, uh, in the name of Jesus, we're justified. We were condemned under the law, clear and simple, guilty, everyone. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6 says this of Jesus, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep had gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He took our penalty so that in the eyes of the law, we who were guilty could be declared innocent. Set free. Punishment dealt out. Price paid. It's covered. 
in the name of Jesus. So now we stand washed and made holy and on the right side of God's law. The the filthy, the immoral, the guilty, washed, sanctified, justified, all in the name of Jesus. There is one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. No one comes to the Father but through me, Jesus said. And the call is simple. The call is to all repent. Trust in me. Admit that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. And this grace, this washing and sanctifying and justifying will be poured out without reserve. And that happens by the Spirit of our God. It's the Holy Spirit who brings about this glorious transformation who applies the the work of Christ on the cross, who who takes that and works it out in our reality. Nicodemus asked Jesus about how he could be saved, actually asked him a very pertinent question to the passage we're looking at, how can I enter the kingdom of God? How can I have this washing, this sanctification, this, this justification? Listen carefully to Jesus' answer, John 3. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel at what I've said to you. You must be born again. So how do I get this new start? How do I get this regeneration? How do I enter into the kingdom of God? Well, you were born of the flesh and you are flesh. You were born of of sinful heritage and you are sinful. You need to be born again. You need a new birth, a new work. And then he talks about the work of the Spirit in it. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You need to be born again. You need to be made new. You need this new beginning. And that new beginning, those those very things that Jesus would accomplish on the cross come by a work of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives that new life. He gives that, that rebirth, that inner transformation that we so desperately need that Jesus purchased for us. And like the wind blows here and there and you don't, see it coming and you don't know where it went to. So it is with the Spirit and His saving work. It's mysterious. It's unpredictable. Why has this person come to faith and not that person? Why him and not her? What's going on? How how come I shared the gospel one time and nothing happens? I share it again and there's new life. It's the Holy Spirit. He's unpredictable. We We don't know His ways. We don't understand His work. And that should do two things in us. First, it ought to make us humbly grateful. If this is you, if you can say, no, I'm I'm trusting in Christ. I have this this washing, this sanctification, this justification. Then you need to realize that is an amazing gift from God to you. God didn't look at you and, and see you as such an amazing treasure that he just had to have you. You weren't able to pull yourself up and impress God and say, God, look at me. No, we were sinners, lost in our sin. Look again at Titus 3.5. We read this a moment ago. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, 
or the washing, regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's his doing in spite of ourselves. That ought to be marvelous in our eyes. That should make us humbly grateful that while we were sinners, Christ died in our place for our trespasses and sins. The holy God chose to save us rather than destroy us as we deserved. And that humble gratitude then ought also to lead us to a loving, courageous optimism. Listen, if he can save you, if he can save me, he can save anybody. Isn't that what this very verse is all about? The, the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, the, those who practice homosexuality and the thieves and the greedy and the drunkards and the revilers and the swindlers who are now washed, sanctified and justified. That's, that's not who you are anymore. You've been made new. The old is gone. The new has come. What hope for anyone. So we need to be clear about sin and we need to be clear about sinners. We're not going to move on those things, but we also have to be clear about salvation. That there's no one too far gone. There is no one whose, whose sinful lifestyle excludes them from the hope of salvation. Even the worst of sinners can come and be made into a saint in the name of Jesus Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. And we are called to hold out that grace and that hope in Jesus Christ, to lovingly and graciously call all sinners to repentance, to faith in Christ. Not to beat down some who are worse sinners than others, but to, to call them to repentance, to lovingly reach out with this glorious gospel. So let's not fall into either ditch. I'll have the worship team come and prepare as I close. Um, far be it from us to try to adjust God's standard. That we would see what God has said and we would say, yeah, we're going to do that a little bit differently. No. No, we're not going to go there. Regardless of the social pressure, regardless of the, the legal action against us, we will be clear on what God calls sin. But at the same time, humbly loving and interacting with and talking with and caring for and being friendly and hospitable towards sinners of all types as we hold out this wonderful gospel. Because such were some of you and me. We can never forget that. And so often as we gather, we seek to remember this reality of our need for a Savior and the wonderful provision in Jesus. We celebrate this truth of our salvation. We come again in humble gratitude the way Jesus commanded us to, taking communion together. This symbol of our salvation in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. So um, we're going to sing together in a moment. The ushers will hand out the, um, the elements. Um, you'll find two cups, the uh, bread in the bottom, the juice in the top. But this is for those who are believers this morning. This is for those who can say, that's me. I was a sinner. I deserved hell. And by God's grace, I have been washed. I have been sanctified. I have been justified. If that's not you this morning, we just ask you to let the cup pass. Um, just go ahead and observe. That's okay. Um, and, uh, and we'd encourage you to think about that. Have you been washed? And if not, do you need to be? Are you guilty before the Lord and in need of this 
glorious salvation.